Wonderful. Well, can I encourage you? I think Mike has been going around putting post-it notes on people a moment ago. And that is a reminder of the fact that we have a question box on top of the piano for the question-answer session, which is the last session tomorrow after I'll be speaking on the book of Revelation. And so can I encourage you to be writing down questions now, this evening, putting them in, so that you'd give myself and Mike and Adam some chance to look at them in advance and be blessed in that way. Though we are, of course, happy to answer questions on the night as they come. But it would be lovely if we could have a quick look at them beforehand. And so do write them down tonight if you can. But we understand if you just want to ask them tomorrow as well. But either way, the box is there on top of the piano. Going to start with some words from Scripture again. Mike is going to be looking especially at the epistles and some words from 2 Timothy. Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he writes this in 2 Tim 3 verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know from those whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we might be those who know the holy scriptures, through them that we might be able to be made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We pray that we continue in these things all the life long, assured of its power to bring salvation. Amen. Mike, over to you. Thank you, Jip. That's great. So um, I was going to stop for a moment and invite you to write a question on your sticky, but uh, you can do that as I'm talking, I guess. So I'm going to get going straight away because I've only got three quarters of an hour to give you about an hour's worth of material. So I've got the marathon again, 17 books last time. Oh no, wait! 25 books after Adam's eight-book donation, but only 22 this time. Everything that happened after Jesus, in, after Jesus' uh, human life, the Acts of the Apostles, and all the epistles. And then after that, after tonight, all we've got to come is Revelation. Well, there's no time for hanging around, so here we go again. Salvation history. The big picture story so far. So this, is, this bit here is in between the two testaments, okay? This is the 200 years of silence. Okay, so first, over here, you've got creation. God creates the world out of his generous love. He gives uh, mankind free choice. So you've got um, the choice not to love God. You've got the fall. Everything goes wrong. But God's choice to love mankind nonetheless. You've got the promise Uh, the covenant to mankind. Um, That covenant promise of God is fulfilled in salvation, in the exodus, and in the law, which is, well, I'm moving a bit close, and the law, which is the uh, 
um, the creation of the structure in which mankind can live together under the rule of God. That rule is um, made physical in the kings, but of course the kings slide downhill, um, and so then you have the prophets who are speaking the word of God to the kingdoms, and uh, the message of judgment and of, um, uh, and of hope is acted out in the history of the people of Israel in the exile, the judgment, and in the return to the promised land uh, in the hope that is there for them of a rebuilt covenant, a new covenant in a rebuilt kingdom. 200 years of silence. And now we have just heard of the recreation of the covenant in Jesus. First, his incarnation, living amongst us. I'm really sorry about this. Is there anything we can do? Okay, sorry about that. Uh, the incarnation of Jesus um, and then uh, his atonement for us, his salvation on the cross and the recreation of new life for us in his resurrection and then his being uh, taken uh, into the the, uh, into taking mankind with him into the throne room of God in the ascension. But that still leaves us here, although we're living um, now but not yet in the kingdom of Christ uh, with his Father, we're still here and we're still broken. And there is still a mission to be fulfilled as we were hearing. And so two more things that we, two more episodes that we uncover, that we um, that, we, that we discover in the rest of the New Testament, and that is the coming of God's Holy Spirit, the coming of God's Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can live out the kingdom of God uh, on this world before it's fulfilled in the next. And finally, the way that, did I say the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? And what the Holy Spirit does is to create the people of God in Christ, and that is the church, and that is us. And everything up until the end of today is this. And tomorrow, you get what happens next after us, okay? So this is all the past up until the present. Tomorrow, you get the, fu the future. That's the big story. That's what God has been doing amongst us from the very beginning. That's where we've got to in our story. So the context um, of the New Testament, we've just heard from Adam the great story of Jesus, the content of our faith and the core of our identity together. What's the theological context for the rest of the New Testament? Well, we've seen how the story of Jesus was anchored in the Old Testament themes of salvation, covenant, and kingdom. We've heard that over and over again. And the prophetic themes of judgment and hope, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Messiah, and the new covenant. The gospel substantially changes and deepens all of this, all of these themes. The Holy Spirit fills and anoints Jesus to be a Messiah of a completely unexpected character along the lines of the suffering servant who's never previously been linked to the idea of the Messiah before. The kingdom is of God and not of this world and salvation is not from the Roman Empire 
as all the Jews of Jesus' time thought, but it's from sin and death. Judgment is once again on the Jews because they missed the opportunity for peace when it came, and the covenant blessing is extended to the whole world, not reserved to Israel. That's what we've just been hearing from Adam. When we think about questions of authorship about the New Testament, um, these questions, these issues are rather sharper for us than in the Old Testament, partly because we give higher authority to the church leaders that we know about, and partly because we have much more internal evidence that we need to evaluate, though there's still no external evidence from non-Christian writings. The internal evidence, as well as the tradition of the church, leaves scholars fairly comfortable that the Acts of the Apostles was written by the same author as the Gospel of Luke, and that he might well have been a travelling companion of Paul for some of his journeys. So, one might ask, why not Luke, Paul's beloved physician? Nobody is arguing that Paul didn't write most of his letters, though often we can see that it was through the aid of a scribe. Some of the letters, though, are written in a slightly different style, which raises the possibility of other authors, but the samples really are too few, and Paul is too versatile a writer to preclude him from being the author of all the letters that are given his name. The letter to the Hebrews is clearly by a different, unnamed author, so there aren't really questions about the authorship. The questions are more, much more really about who he was writing to, his audience. There are no major concerns about the authorship of Peter's letters, and John's letters are very similar to John's Gospel, though there are questions about whether that is the John the disciple or a different John, and whether he's also the author of Revelation. James is thought to be by the brother of Je Jesus, who rose to prominence in the early church. We see that in the Acts of the Apostles, after the death of James the disciple. And it's anyone's guess which of the possible Judes wrote the letter with our name. Needless to say, in two minutes, I've skated over 600 pages of Donald Guthrie's magisterial introduction to the New Testament. I wish you fun. Um, all I can say is that in the 1960s, it was generally thought impossible to think that any uh, disciple of Jesus might have written any um, of the uh, works of the New Testament. By the end of the 1990s, it was generally thought to be reasonably respectable to hold that the people we thought had written uh, the, the books of the New Testament had, pro had possibly done so. So um, I don't think anyone needs to feel particularly alarmed or concerned about the author issues, but it's worth just laying them out there for you because often you will hear other people um, casting aspersions on the authorship of the New Testament. What's the historical background? Of course, the immediate historical background to the rest of the writings that I'm speaking about is the life of Jesus. Whether or not congregations had the actual written Gospels, they had definitely heard the preaching of the Apostles, which included the story of Jesus' life, his teachings, his death and resurrection. Clearly, Acts follows on from the Gospel of Luke and is based on that prior story. But for Paul's letters, which were probably written before the Gospels were written and widely circulated, um, we're actually thinking, we're, we're dealing with um, a conversation that is before the written Gospels that we see. So, the very few occasions where Paul quotes Jesus directly is of particular interest. Equally, the historical episodes that Paul cites in his letters are a fascinating cross-reference with Luke's story of Paul's mission to the Gentiles in Acts. 
Underlying the story of Jesus and the early church, of course, is the impact of Roman occupation and domination, both in Israel and across the regions where Paul travels planting his churches. If you turn right to the back of your, um, of your order of service, of your booklet, you will see the world. This is the world that Paul knew, okay? And he is basically traveling. I haven't got any pretty pictures for you like um, Adam because I just thought, you know, you've got them all already. You might as well just use them. So uh, on the back of this booklet, if I can find it, you've got a um, picture there. And the, the arrows at the top are basically where Paul went on his missionary journey. So that's the kind of area that he was working with. It's um, uh, along kind of through where Turkey is now and then getting into uh, northern Greece, sort of Macedonia area, and then down into Greece itself, and then eventually sails across to Italy. And the Roman Empire covers all of that and more. Um, and therefore, uh, Roman-imposed peace and Roman-sponsored safe travel make possible Paul's missionary journeys across the world. These had been far less, uh, far more dubious a um, hundred years earlier. And, uh, Rome, and Paul's Roman citizenship is clearly an aid for him in his journeying. Roman imperial culture and Greek literary culture are evident in many of his encounters and much of his correspondence. But above all, his apologetics, the way that he argues for the gospel, is determined by his transition from Hebrew monotheistic spirituality in Israel through to Greek polytheism and pantheism in the rest of the world where he travels. Genres. There are two genres in my block of books. The first is Greek history, and the second is the epistle. So Greek history um, is different, slightly different, um, to Jewish history. Jewish history is primarily the story of God at work, as we've seen throughout the Old Testament. Greek history is primarily a focus on what men do. So Thucydides, a Greek author writing after the last of the Old Testament prophets, um, just as you get into that 200 years silence, um, completely changed the way that Greek did the Greeks did history. Um, so prior to him, uh, the previous guy um, called Herodotus um, had basically gathered all the stories that he could find and shoved them all in there together. It was kind of more like a, um, um, like um, that word that I can't remember. It was, um, it was just a gathering of all stories together in one book without any discretion as to what stories to include. Um, Thucydides wanted to write about a war in which he'd been personally involved. So he determined to offer an impartial account, not inspired by... Uh, political perspectives. And he wanted to find and interview, if he possibly could, people who had been actual participants in each episode and then to cross-check the accuracy of his source with other sources. And this is the same approach that Luke says he takes towards his gospel material, the Gospel of Luke, and he extends into Acts, his history of the early church. So this is much more like the kind of way that we do history now, 2,000 years later, than was the kind of way that the Jewish writers were writing history only about 400 years before. 
The other genre is epistles, letters. And there was actually a huge volume of contemporary letters from around the time of Paul. Communications were much easier around the empire. Obviously, um, um, ink and, and papyrus were, was, much, was much cheaper. There were more educated people able to write. It was, it was all much more possible. So, so letter writing became a kind of great thing that was happening. In fact, antiquity knew of 72 books of letters by Cicero. Can you imagine somebody being so self-focused that they kept absolutely everything that they ever wrote? It was like, it would be like me publishing all of my emails for the last 30 years. It was extraordinary what Cicero did. He was writing about 100 years before Paul, so there was a really large kind of um, body of, of epistles um, at the time of Paul, so it was easy, uh, it's easy for us now to check the expected shape of an epistle, which Paul follows very closely. And he uses that shape to his advantage um, in a number of ways, but I'm just going to mention now, for instance, he uses the initial thanksgiving section of a letter to introduce positively themes that he is later going to deal with, probably in a less positive way, a slightly more critical one. So he says thank you first for the very thing he's later going to pull them up on. Of course, for Paul, the letters that he's writing are not primarily practical communications as they were for Cicero, but rather an opportunity to develop a considered theology out of the practical situations which give rise to the epistle. Within the epistle, there are several subgenres which Paul, as an educated literate writer, was able to employ. The most important was the forensic argument, honed to such a sharp edge by Cicero as well, which includes not only careful logic, but also the persuasive or motivational peroration. Language. There are two huge advantages of the Greek language in which the whole New Testament was written. Firstly, it's a great deal more precise than Hebrew, as we were talking about yesterday, um, which allows greater accuracy and precision in theological argument. Secondly, it's written, read, and understood in all of the places where the first-generation church is springing up, albeit in a simplified format called Common Greek, um, Koine Greek, in which the New Testament was written. And the result of that breadth of use across the Roman world is that the collection of letters gathered in the New Testament canon could be read by the whole worldwide church as it continued to spread. Only as it moved to nations outside the zone of Greek culture did it become necessary to translate it into Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Gothic, and, and other languages. Secondly, the multiplicity of authors writing in common Greek, not just in the New Testament, means that we've got a much better understanding of any unusual vocabulary that Paul and other New Testament writers choose to employ. So you remember yesterday I was saying there are Hebrew words only used once in, in the Bible and never anywhere else in the world. So it's a real guess as to what it actually means. That's never the case in Greek because you've got hundreds of writers writing using those same words in lots of different ways. Well, I say never the case. There are one or two hapax logomena, but not very many. Okay, so that's the historical context. What are the theological themes that come out in the New Testament? Well, there is so much that Paul reflects on in his epistles. I, I don't know where I could possibly 
begin or end with that. But I think I might most helpfully start with the two overarching themes of the book of Acts and move on from there. So in Acts, there are two basic themes that follow through the length of the book. Um, the first is the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts has often been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually the prime mover in Acts, not Peter or Paul or any of the, the apostles. In the first chapter, Jesus predicts the coming of the Spirit who will empower them for worldwide mission. And that's fulfilled in chapter 2 at Pentecost. And then the Holy Spirit is mentioned 41 times, usually as the subject of the sentence. So, for instance, Acts 16.6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. The Holy Spirit is constraining and guiding them in what they do. Certainly, the Holy Spirit drives major developments in mission, like Philip's evangelism of the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember Philip is taken on by the Holy Spirit to the next place. And Peter's ac acceptance of Cornelius into faith, because he's, he's preaching to Cornelius. He hasn't even got to the point of deciding whether he's going to ask for an altar call or not. And the Holy Spirit, zam, bang, and takes out those, those Romans who are just Gentiles who have nothing to do with the Jewish people. He just takes that decision away from Paul and moves the whole church on. So, so the Spirit steps right over Peter's theological objections and opens the, the gate for the gospel to be preached to the whole world, to every person in the world. And Paul's going to develop our understanding of the Holy Spirit further, considering, the, the, for example, the power of the Spirit, its fruit and its gifts, and its critical role in our worship. The other great theme of Acts is that the blessing of the gospel, as we were hearing earlier, is to be offered to all peoples and nations. The gospel begins in Jerusalem, the city of the resurrection, and it makes its way, as, as Luke says at the beginning of Acts, through Judah and Samaria to the ends of the, wor the world which for anybody in Jerusalem is Rome, the sink of the world, the center of Roman Empire, the far end, spiritually, of the world. This explosion outwards, predicted by Jesus at the start of Acts and fulfilled by Paul by the end of the book, for Paul, the worldwide call of the gospel is taken for granted in all of his letters. Okay, so what are the other themes that Paul thinks about in his epistles? Well, here are a few of them. Um, we talked right at the beginning about the theme um, in Exodus of God alone. God the unstoppable. God, the one, only, unstoppable God of the whole world who has chosen a people through whom to bless all nations. Well, that theme, of course, is upheld through the New Testament. But the gospel story has brought the challenge that God is uniquely present in Jesus, that through the Son of Mary, he is also the Son of God. Sorry, that though the Son of Mary, he is also the Son of God. God's, and also, God's Spirit has become present in a powerful new way in the life of Jesus and the subsequent mission of the church. While he doesn't develop a coherent doctrine of the Trinity, which would take another 300 years, Paul affirms the three persons of God, the Father, to whom all praise belongs, the Spirit, by whom God acts, and the Son, 
in, in whom all things are created and redeemed. So it's no surprise to us when we finally get the Gospel of Matthew um, coming to our church and we read that final baptismal uh, formula at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Um, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore go and make dis disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You might recognize that uh, verse if you came to the baptism here last week. Okay, God in three persons. The atonement, we've heard a lot about that from Adam, the meaning of the cross. Paul makes it clear that the cross of Jesus is absolutely core to his teaching. So it's not surprising that he spends so long describing and working out its meaning. He gives more than 30 different metaphors for the cross, some of which are extensively used and others just touched upon. Metaphors include the, the what, the how and the why of the cross. What did his death achieve? How did he do that? And why did he do it? To what benefit for us? The book of Hebrews is the fullest exploration of the atonement, setting out through many chapters to reinterpret the whole Old Testament sacrificial atonement system through the death of Christ. Paul insists that total forgiveness of even the worst sins, like his own, is offered by Christ through Christ's own death. The consequences of that forgiveness are reconciliation with God, unity with Christ, and eternal life. And all of those benefits of his passion are no longer earned by adherence to the law, but are the free gift of Christ's grace towards us. The church. The church, of course, is a whole new theme for the New Testament. There has been no mention of the church before the New Testament. No longer is the people of God confined to the Jews, the chosen people. Entry to God's family is now through faith and not through birth. And the mission of the church is to all people everywhere in the world. More than that, Paul explores the idea that the church is not just a new chosen people, but it's intimately related to God as the very body of Christ. Perhaps it was hearing that Paul had been persecuting Christ himself that helped him to make such a huge conceptual leap. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul says that the church isn't just God's new chosen agency for his mission, it's the very reason that Christ rules over the whole world. He does it for the sake of the church. How unbelievable is that? Ethics. Because through Christ's death, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, eternal life are ours to receive freely through grace and not by keeping the law, one might think that Christians are now free to do anything they like. And some Christians did think that. Well, not so, says Paul. Christians, we Christians, are committed to an even higher standard. But our motivation is gratitude, not guilt. It's tremendously important to remember that for Paul and other New Testament writings, doctrine is both what we believe and it's what we do. Faith in Christ must be demonstrated in holiness of life. We can't have one without the other. The future. Along with the identity of Christ, the biggest theological discovery of the New Testament concerns life after death. 
where this had been an idea toyed around with in, in the Old Testament, it becomes the rock-solid foundation of the whole gospel hope, based on the disciples' physical encounter with their crucified and risen Lord. This certainly not only gave the early church a contempt for death that precipitated courageous witness to a powerful and hostile empire, but it also totally reorganizes their understanding of what happens after death. So, finally, kingdom and covenant. We've seen this bipolar theme of kingdom and covenant worked out throughout the New Testament. God's kingship is demonstrated in his victory over sin and death through the sacrifice of Christ the King. The kingdom of heaven now no longer confined to a national border but comprising all who acknowledge his rule. The covenant is now for an intimate and internal unity between God and his people through his spirit. A unity as close as body and head. Covenant people include all people everywhere, Jews and Greek, sorry, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, adults and children, slaves and free, sick and healthy. The temple, the place of God's dwelling, at first a physical lo location and then Christ himself, is now the whole people of God in Christ, wherever they find themselves. And Sabbath is every day. Circumcision is not of the body, but of the heart by faith. The covenant land reaches to all the ends of the world. The blessing of the covenant is for all nations, and the mission of the people of God is to draw everyone everywhere into discipleship of Christ. Okay, well, I did pretty well with my introduction. 22 books in 17 minutes. What can I tell you about them? The Acts of the Apostles. Jerum, sorry, Jerusalem to Rome in 28 chapters. Done. Romans. Near the end of his life, Paul, Paul is writing to the Romans, outlining his understanding of faith to a church that he hasn't yet visited. So this book, this letter of the Romans, huge letter, is the maturest statement of Paul's faith that we have. It's got riches for the new Christian and depths for the ablest theologian. It has been the book which has brought reformation to the church again and again. Augustine, Luther, Wesley, and Bart all found faith in Christ through the epistle to the Romans. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to one of the spiritually most vigorous and ethically most immature of his churches, producing some of his most challenging practical theology. There's effective teaching, most notably on sexuality, life in the spirit, and the resurrection. 2 Corinthians, things aren't going much better. Paul has to defend his reputation, so we hear rather more than in any other letter about Paul's experience of pastoring churches and his self-understanding as an apostle of Christ. Defending his apostolic credentials against itinerant teachers undermining him in his absence becomes a repeating feature of Paul's letters. It's not always easy to know what his crit critics are actually alleging as we only ever hear Paul's responses. Sometimes it seems to be about the freedom from the law for non-Jewish Christians, which is the hallmark of Paul's theology. Sometimes it's about whether he's actually an apostle, and sometimes whether he's being too undemanding, not requiring enough from them in terms of support. Galatians. 
Paul writes to a church which has been undermined by Jewish Christians, suggesting they all need to get circumcised. Paul clearly lays out the gospel of faith, not works, according to the law. We are crucified with Christ, so we don't need to return to the Old Testament law. But live by the Spirit of Jesus. He adds some arguments from his personal encounters with Peter and from God's covenant with Abraham. Ephesians. Oh, I should say, um, if you wanted to know which order these come in, well, Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians, you know, they're quite obvious. Then you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. Uh, I just learned a new way of um, uh, holding those in your mind together this morning. Apparently, it's um, gas and electric power company in turmoil. No. What was the last one? You were the one told me. Oh, God's Electric Power Company, what? Oh, so there's no Thessalonians, so mine's better, okay. A, Galatians, E, Ephesians, I, Philippians, O, Colossians, and U, Thessalonians, obvious. Okay, so Ephesians, the most complex and dense statement of the glory of the gospel. As if you were standing on the Spinnaker Tower and surveying the landscape of the gospel spread out below you. There is still time, however, for a couple of chapters of practical ethics, behavior, relationships, and spiritual warfare. Philippians, the loveliest of Paul's letters, written to a church of which he was especially fond, in the words of the shack. But there are still relational difficulties, and Euodia and Syntyche need a bit of encouragement to sort things out between them. Um, chapter 2, verse 3, includes what might be the earliest Christian song recorded which I'm going to read to you as I finish. Paul also speaks of his own approach to death, which I'd like to read to you now in tribute to Warren Curtin Vaughan, a long-term member of our congregation who died yesterday afternoon. Listen to this, Philippians 1, 20 to 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Chapter 3, verse 10 following. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Amen. Is that not a vision to call you onwards? Colossians, a chapter and a half of the most glorious statement of the crucified Christ now ascended and reigning over the world for the sake of the church. Followed by two and a half chapters of practical instructions for living together as Christians. Here's Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all things, to, to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 2, 9 to 15. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is Christ for us. 1 Thessalonians, thought to be the first of Paul's epistles, paints a picture of one of the very first non-Jewish churches struggling with persecution and feeling rather isolated, yet living out a powerful testimony of joy and love across the class boundaries. 2 Thessalonians, seems to have been written shortly afterwards, situation not much better, and a question has arisen about the end of the world, which Paul has to deal with, along with its practical implications for daily life. 1 Timothy, an encouraging letter to Timothy, one of Paul's key team members, who he often sent as his consultant to one or other of his churches. He sent them off as his emissary, his ambassador, to speak for him. Currently, Timothy is looking after the larger church at Ephesus while Paul is in prison. As well as personal encouragement, this letter contains, contains practical advice on a number of leadership issues, including choosing leaders and dealing with false teaching. To Timothy, a rather more urgent letter from Paul awaiting the results of his trial, asking Timothy to try to reach him while there's still time. Some practical requests and more encouragement to Timothy to carry on his ministry. Titus, written about the same time, Titus has a similar but rather more demanding job in Crete. This letter strengthens his hand for his difficult task. Philemon, a beautifully written request in a pastorally sensitive situation. When I, uh, when I went to, um, for my ordination interview panel, I was asked to write a, uh, a pastoral letter to a difficult pastoral situation. I just got nowhere compared with Paul. Here's the situation. Philemon has a slave, Onesimus, who has run away, but has, me has met Paul while Paul was in prison and has become a Christian. By rights, Onesimus should be sent back to Philemon and harshly dealt with, possibly killed, because escaping slaves were dealt with very severely. Paul asked Philemon to do the unthinkable and forgive him, even liberate his slave, who is now his Christian brother. He offers to pay any, he offers to pay any um, damage that, uh, that Onesimus has done to Philemon, uh, whilst delicately reminding Philemon that Philemon himself has an obligation to Paul, presumably having heard the gospel from him, and therefore owes something of his eternal life to the preaching of Paul. That's put in three words. Hebrews. A long exploration of the temple and sacrifice system and the way that Christ has now fulfilled and set it aside. Notable for its reference to Melchizedek, that name that nobody wants to, uh, to get in their reading if they're doing it in front of the rest of the church. And, okay, there is one other name in the Old Testament that's even worse than Melchizedek, and that's Mephibosheth. But there you go. And for the long schedule of saints of the Old Testament who lived and died by faith in uh, Hebrews 10 and 11. Hebrews 12 concludes the story of faith. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. James has two things on his mind as he writes his general letter to the churches. The first is persecution and how that forms a crucible in which our faith can be tested and our character strengthened. The second is how faith needs to be underscored by good works. This letter was severely criticised by Luther as being a retrograde letter, going back to justification by works of the law. But modern commentators suggest that this is to misunderstand James. Far be it from me to say that Luther misunderstood anything. But the letter would cohere happily with the understanding that we are justified by faith alone, but unless that faith demonstrates itself in change of life and acts of compassion, it's unlikely to have been true faith in Christ. 1 Peter. The Apostle Peter also writes in a time of persecution, but starts with the rock of Christ on which our faith is built and the holiness which that faith demands from us. That leads us to a humble patience and a respect for authority even when we're suffering. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares about you. 2 Peter. A second letter of encouragement, uh, encouragement which focuses on good character, and holding firm to apostolic teaching, recognising the doom of false prophets and teachers in the coming day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory, now and forever. Amen. This letter is the only cross-reference that we have to Paul's letters. A delightful comment which many a preacher today would appreciate. 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in, in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. We do our best. 1 John a powerful letter written against false teaching and for the theme of mutual love, best known for its contribution to our wedding service. 1 John 4, 7-12, for instance. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The word atoning there is the word um, propitiation that uh, Adam would like us to encourage to take on again. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 2 John is the shortest letter in the book of the Bible. 
John writes possibly to a, uh, to a church, both to reaffirm his commandment of love and to forestall the arrival of false teachers. He has a great explanation for the briefness of his letter. I love this. 2 John 1.12. I model my emails on it. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. 3 John, longer by one verse. To a friend who has been discouraged, don't repay evil with evil. It contains one of my favourite verses, which works just as well for children as for congregation members. 3 John 1, 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And finally, Jude. The most special of all the letters. A series of three-point sermons. Take this, for, for example, Jude 1, 1 to 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. There you are, first sermon. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in obedience. You'll find it all the way through. His arguments are mainly against opponents of the church, but it has a lot in common with some of the minor prophets, namely that a commentary is absolutely essential for understanding any of it. But it ends with our glorious doxology, which I use in this church as often as I possibly can. Jude 1, 24 to 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Acts and the Epistles are the story of the Church and its reflection on the gift of Christ. They've become the bedrock of the Church's theology. How blessed we are to have a theologian of Paul's calibre working through the, the theological and practical implications of this new Gospel faith. I guess I just want to say, having read through so many letters in the last few days, and read out to you so many beautiful verses, what an absolute delight it is to keep reading these scriptures which have fed the church and my own life for so many years. Well, my life for less years than the church, clearly. I guess I want to encourage you to do it again yourself. Don't settle for just listening to the scriptures on Sunday. Go back and read your way through the New Testament and relish again all of those verses that you'd once heard and had forgotten. But I think the most important impact of the gift of the Bible for our generation is that it gives us a direct link with the gospel. We hear for ourselves Christ's words, the preaching of the apostles, and the theological insight of the first Christians. We are not insulated from all of that by previous generations of Christians second-guessing what Christ might have wanted to say to us and telling us only what they think would be a more comfortable version of faith. We can read the actual words of the first church ourselves, And we can respond to it directly 
ourselves. Christ is the New Testament. He has become its all in all. If he was foreshadowed and foretold and foremodeled in the Old Testament, he has become the Word of God. All that the Bible is. If the Bible were a portrait, the Old Testament would be the background, the epistle would be the clothes, but the face, the gospel, is Christ. As Jesus said to Thomas in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. Well, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Paul would, I guess, have accepted John's conclusion to his gospel as a fitting description of the whole Bible. John 20, 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let me finish with that song of Paul to his crucified risen Saviour, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. I hope you've written questions.